Beirut-based artist Hai Gavazian works in a range of media, including performance, video, sculpture, and installation, to unpack the machinations of power and the hidden ideological flows within histories, such as music, sports, street lighting, and predictive policing. Based on extensive research, his practice is at once exactingly precise and at the same time is an avalanche of sensory information. In conversation with writer Noah Simblist, Avazian dissects a selection of his works that revolve around music and its relationship to nationalism and colonialism. This is a podcast from Liquid Architecture. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture. I wonder if you can start us off with a project that's uh, really clearly connected to sound, um, which is I'm sick, uh, but I am alive. Yeah, the project starts with a figure, a musician uh, whose kind of significance I had no uh, real sense of. Uh, so I came across this musician uh, many years ago at a at a HMB at the time. So it was a while a while ago, and uh, I recognize his name as being Armenian, and yet he was a oud player, and his uh, title oudi, so oud master, was in Turkish. So yeah, he was referred to on the cover as Udi Hirant. And so I was intrigued because I had never uh, really uh, sort of connected the Oud to Armenian music per se. My experience of Armenian music, and I always had like a conflicted relationship with it, was that it was folkloric uh, music that referred to like clearly uh, kind of folkloric Armenian motifs, mainly like rural life, uh, agriculture, life on plantation. But then the music always sounded like like it came from a conservatoire or something like it always the, the voices were always like very heady voices it was very operatic always so it just sounded weird to me and so when i listened to the this Udihirant album it was mainly in turkish actually and it was just like makam turkish makam so solos on on oud and then i was just kind of like skipping through to decide if i was going to purchase the cd or not and then i got to the last track which was also starts off in turkish and then at some point he sort of addresses the recorder and the recorder was one of his students. And he says he dedicates it in Armenian, dedicates the song to him and continues to sing in Armenian, but with the same kind of undulations and intonations. And to me, that sounded much more kind of familiar. It, 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 it wasn't awkward anymore. So that was that. That was like, you know, many years ago. And then many years later, I was invited to Istanbul for a residency and thought I would kind of look into this guy. And so basically what my ear had sort of detected, what wasn't sitting quite right in my ear was, was this, this kind of transformation that happened at the early 20th century, where at different moments, uh, Middle Eastern musics turned towards the West and basically decided to modernize. And the way in which they did that for the most part was to, uh, to adopt notation, Western notation systems. There were other notation systems uh, that were functioning at the time, but they were mainly to uh, keep records of things and not to play from. The way that music was taught and transmitted was through repetition, through master-student kind of relationship. 
Um, and so what happens in this process, and it happens with the different kind of uh, populations of the Ottoman Empire at different times and in different ways, is that music is actually distorted. Things are kind of rounded off. Instruments are standardized. The kind of modes that each nation now identifying as a nation separate from the Ottoman Empire starts to identify their national kind of identity through these selections of modes. So the Arabs take some of the modes, the Greeks take some of the modes, the Turks take some of the modes, etc. They all introduce Western notation. They all uh, also identify their national instruments. There's a kind of campaign. There's an understanding of the importance of radio and nation building. So this idea of building a nation around collective listening uh, to sounds that become familiar to us as our own. And so all of the stuff that I was hearing and that was being kind of identified as Armenian folkloric music was in fact this distorted version that they were truly uh, these old uh, sort of uh, folkloric pieces of music, but they had gone through these transformations and they were actually being taught in conservatoire and they were being taught with these Western values of what makes uh, melody melodious. So in the case of the Armenians in particular, some of the instruments were distorted uh, enough to kind of do away with the quarter notes and to to kind of round off the notes. And so for me, it was a point of interest because, yeah, it becomes this uh, sonic kind of way to, to, to sort of feel, I guess, what these historical facts that we know otherwise as historical facts, what, what, what do they sound like? And could this kind of violence be felt in music today? Could it be felt in pop music today, for instance? Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that the Armenian designation, because the process that you're talking about of this sort of post-Ottoman Empire beginning of, of nation building that would exist for Greece or the Arab states or modern Turkey um, was a process that wasn't afforded to Armenians um, in terms of nation building explicitly. And that's part of the fraught relationship with, with Turkey, right? So like so the Armenian position seems slightly different. I mean, it's different in that, yeah, they weren't afforded a nation state with clear borders, but it was a strong nationalist movement, uh, just as, as was the case with the Kurds, for instance, or other minorities as well. So there was this kind of transition from being like an Ottoman subject to some kind of self-awareness of, you know, a national specificity. And that specificity had to do with language. It very much had to do with music. It had to do with food. I mean, you know, there's a similar kind of disentanglement that happens with food that you can have very similar dishes or the same dish, in fact, being named differently and claimed differently by different nations that were, you know, that was make, that were making the same stuff. And music uh, is, is certainly a similar kind of situation where, and this is why the distortions were also necessary. So some of these, for instance, field songs uh, might have been shared by various populations when they get reclaimed by each uh, respective nation, that requires distortion in terms of how it's notated and how it's kind of undulated, but also some of the language. You know, there might have been words in there that were not one language or the other, so those get transformed, meaning of things get transformed, references to geographies get transformed. So, yeah. It makes me think of Benedict Anderson's notion of like nationalism as being defined as this imaginary and the use of sound or music or food seems so crucial to, to defining that imaginary, even if it isn't like, you know, a technical state, you know, that is yes. successful. Absolutely. One thing I was wondering is that there's this, uh, just in, in the description of the project on your website, you note that this musician was blind 
And I'm wondering if it's just such a, an interesting uh, fact in the mix of this, just because of the focus on listening and sound and that kind of sense as, as a way of coming together. And you're making a project that is primarily sort of visual and spatial. So I, I wonder how, how you were thinking about the space that exists between these various senses with this project. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the detail is also important in terms of narratively because, you know, so he plays in the kind of cafe or cabaret scene in Istanbul and he had, he, he gathers some kind of following and some of those followers happen to be influential kind of rich people. And so they offer to try and cure his blindness. So they send him off to places to, to try and get treatment for his uh, blindness. And that's, that's the kind of primary way or reason for which he travels. And that's the way in which he, sort of uh, ends up uh, spreading music. So there's a whole sort of New York, then California school of Armenian oud uh, players who still refer to the Ottoman Empire as the old country. And that lineage is still kind of ongoing today. So it's, it's, it's important in that, in that way as well. And in terms of, of dealing with the matter, mostly through uh, objects and kind of visual uh, material, that was certainly true for the, for the kind of first leg of the of the project which which was mainly concerned with this notion of distortion to try and really link the idea of music the notes being distorted and to try and kind of imagine the effects of those kind of vibrations from the sound to uh, the bodies of the instrument through which they're emitted the bodies of the musicians that are playing them the architecture that contains those bodies the geography that contains that you know this kind of this kind of thing. And there were like a few kind of narrative or historical motifs in the, in the research that I was doing that I was interested in, in kind of getting at. And, and the way that I, I guess that I was most comfortable dealing with those things were, were through the objects. So I was, you know, I worked with instrument makers um, because that's another kind of form of transmission, the master to student, but ways in which instruments were made. So I was interested in that and to, to think about how materials contain uh, the traces of these of these sounds, but there were then other components in the in the in the project that were more that focused on musicians more. Um, so there were collaborations with uh, mainly church singers, and that was more yeah that was more dealing with the with actual uh, sonic kind of component. But yeah, the first the first kind of body of work uh, contained drawings and sculptures and a video, which which was a kind of strange musical tour of Istanbul that kind of followed somehow the, the traces of Udi Hiram to, to get at these musical practices kind of, yeah, in the city. I noticed from installation images that there's this kind of marble motif. Is that tied to this narrative of the Armenian cemetery that was destroyed that then led to the radio station? So yeah, so the radio station has this kind of uh, national project, uh, and in Turkey in particular, because then it expands to a broader kind of you know, what would you call it? Like a, a, a media kind of empire. So it's not just yeah. radio, it then expands to TV, and then when satellite comes along, like it's Telete, so it's like the national Turkish media. And the, the area upon which that was built was had a large Armenian cemetery there, which had, had, hadn't been in use because it had closed kind of several decades before the radio station was constructed because there was like an outbreak of pests or something like that. So they weren't bringing bodies to to the heart of the city anymore. So they had moved the cemeteries outward. The way that I came across this fact as well is, so there's a church in Istanbul that 
who they're not used to kind of go to. And so I went there to, to meet people to, to, to find out more. And I found out that they were still teaching the pre-modern uh, way of chanting. But anyway, as I was waiting there in their courtyard, they had this kind of very particular tiling, this marble tiling that was very irregular. And I guess like when at some point in the conversation, I, I sort of just commented about it, said, oh, this is really beautiful or something like that. And then they told me the story that these were the tombstones that were repurposed from, from the cemetery, which is quite a common practice in, in I guess, the Ottoman uh, area and mainly in Turkey to kind of repurpose and to integrate materials from a specific architecture into another one. So I just thought that there was uh, something also quite kind of powerful about this idea that these sort of materials or architectural elements can, can be witnessed at like multiple layers of history and absorbing these various tonic vibrations, I guess. And the, and the radio station itself is made out of the same kind of marble, which is a very widespread marble, but like the, the kind of lobby of the radio station is all cladded with this, with this gray and white marble. One thing that struck me just in looking at, at that little fact about the sort of the development of, of Gezi Park but was that this piece was shown in, in 2015, which was like two years after the protests in Gezi Park, which were also about development in relationship to a, a particular notion of Turkish um, nationalism. So um, was that something that, that you were thinking about also? Yeah, and it, it was also like when the Gezi protests you know, started when these bulldozers came into the park and started digging. And so these images of, of the tombstones with Armenian inscriptions also were circulated because apparently, you know, some of these tombstones were still around and they were unearthed when the bulldozers, you know, started digging there. And they were like this kind of, that image uh, ended up being this additional kind of mobilizing force, which of course is beautiful to me, right? Because it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how nation states are, come to claim themselves as such but you know the driving motivation of the work is the opposite of that so when there's a kind of sense of reclaiming a certain kind of diversity uh, or the importance of certain uh, minorities in in building a place yeah so it was this kind of very resonant factoid that yeah spoke to the heart of the project for me and, yeah. and that gave it yeah like a validity of some kind that i'm not just interested in sort of dead historical facts uh, at all. I'm interested in how those historical facts might still have kind of strange uh, zombies laying around still and, and to identify those zombies. Yeah, as you mentioned, like that, that's something I, I wasn't aware of because at least I had visited there like a couple months after those protests and, and I was only aware of that particular moment, you know, of the, the reaction against the redevelopment. But to realize that it actually was part of a history of another kind of redevelopment and that literally the bulldozers are sort of, you know, acting like archaeologists, like scraping away at these layers of violence um, against various communities. It, it's, you know, even more powerful.
so you mentioned the this other work, the, the choral works, like, and there's this one, uh, Wavy is to see Mama. So that was also around the same time. Um, and this is when this Armenian church choir reinterprets a song by the same musician in an abandoned school in Turkey. So I'm wondering, you know, what was the thinking behind that project and what was the significance of that place? So after after this kind of initial discovery of that first album, you know, I, I kind of dug deeper and found more of uh, Udi Hrant's discography and realized that they, you know, he mainly sang in Turkish, but had a couple of other songs in Armenian. And this particular song, he had actually sang in both languages, in Turkish and in Armenian, several years apart. And I... I realized that that was one of these kind of folkloric songs from Erzinjan, like a rural area. And it was actually a song that was sang by women who, and the original lyrics of the song were basically this longing for the men that left the village to go to the city to find work. And so the women would sing these songs as they were working in the fields, longing for their partners who were were far away. And so, you know, uh, as I said, the project in and of itself is, is interested in these transformations. And this happened to be this particular kind of transformation where he basically changes the kind of speaking voice and is a, is somebody in police, which is, which is what a lot of the, or at least the Greeks and the Armenians of Istanbul call Istanbul. So he moves it from a rural setting to an urban setting, from a female perspective to a male perspective. And it's a moving song, but also to me, somehow it, it sort of resonated with also this kind of other erasure that modernity uh, sort of enacts, and that is the role of women in music making. And so because we move from music being this kind of like social, shared, unauthored practice, collective practice, to one that's practiced by exceptional talents on a kind of uh, secluded, elevated stage, with certain qualifications and so forth. So the the whole kind of organic uh, development of music that happened to be uh, in female spaces or domestic spaces or spaces of work, all of that stuff kind of gets moved to the side. To me, it it, it was a kind of a way in which to kind of think about about this this layer of things as well. In terms of the school, I mean, it was uh, one of the the venues of the Istanbul Biennial, which this performance was a part of, but it was uh, in this Greek school that uh, has been has been repurposed as an exhibition space and so yeah it was a, a, a way in which to think about how sound can kind of fill a space up and how it can uh, at least conjure a presence or repopulate in a certain way yeah and, and the, the chorus of the song in the way that i arranged it was just taking one of the lines one of the verses from the songs in it in which he says uh, wavy is the sea of Istanbul. And he, you know, it's a kind of melodramatic song where he's longing for his long lost lover and just wishes to be reunited with her once more so that he can just be satisfied with life and throw himself in the sea, essentially. And so wavy is the sea, uh, was the motif that I kind of chose. And the way that the performance was structured was around the staircase of the, of the school. And so there were solos for each of the floors. And then as they walk up the stairs, they would say, wavy is the sea. And so there was, you know, this kind of like uh, repetition and uh, people would follow them. So it was this very kind of claustrophobic cipher, this moving cipher that was kind of like moving up the spine of the building in a way. (laughs) 
And then uh, there's this other piece, To Be Human, O Mountain, from a few years later, where there's also using a choir, but this time it's a more rural location in Turkey. Is that right? Yeah. This was part of a festival called Cappadox in Cappadocia. And so Cappadocia is this incredible cinematic uh, space where there is incredible rock formations. It's a volcanic kind of area. So you have these kind of mushroom-like rocks. And anyway, so the festival was held there. And when I was doing site visits there, I came across this church, uh, a a Byzantine church, uh, which had been transformed into a prison in the 50s. And it was one of the first prisons, I was told, uh, to have a a political prisoner wing. And so I met uh, somebody who had spent a few years there, this guy Mukremi Tokmak, who's a sort of larger than life, like super, you know, interesting, friendly, uh, lovely person. so uh, after it was kind of disused as a as a church, it briefly was like a potato storage, mm-hmm. and then it was used as a as a prison. And at the time, I was you know still thinking about this project, but I had really gotten into the figure of the, the ethnomusicologist as this kind of tricky character that was kind of like a quintessential figure in preserving, but it was also kind of like a a cop or something, a figure who really embodied the. The contradictions of modernity. So it's like the, the very thing that modernity is instrumental in kind of erasing, eradicating. It also makes it a point to like celebrate itself as the preserver of this very thing. So you kill a practice that is alive and lively, you endanger it, and then you give importance to the kind of the necessity to preserve it. And I was also uh, reading about the yeah ethnomusicologist in, in the US actually after, you know, in the kind of post-slavery era. So there was a similar kind of uh, anxiety with authentic culture being eradicated because there was a realization that African-American music was American music. And the, the main site of the production of that music were the fields. Because the black population was no longer constrained to the field, there was a kind of anxiety that if we collect or there's music, where would we go? This is where the kind of the, the figure of the the policemen and the ethnomusicologists kind of collide because they they end up both looking for the same stereotype, which is to say the runaway. Uh, and then in terms of the ethnomusicologist, this belief that the authentic blues were sung by people who were on the run, who were living a, a rough life. So they were also typecasting the people that they would encounter and ask them to sing authentic blues to them. But it was also this parallel in terms of this this church that I came across and the, the history of, of ethnomusicology in the, in the United States being that you go from the fields, so a site of plantation, a site of agriculture, to churches. They end up going to churches to collect music, but then also they end up going to prisons because that's the systemic transformation from plantation to prison, right? And so I found that this church kind of contained all three of these sites as a potato storage, as a church in and of itself, and as a prison. And so not to say that, you know, those histories are the same or that, you know, the kind of dispossession was, was at the same level, but it was a way to kind of, yeah, address the parallels. Uh, the kind of unevenness of modernity uh, had similar motifs in very diverse geographies. And so I asked Mukremin what his, uh, if they sang songs when he was in prison. And he said, of course we did. And he uh, sang one of his favorite ones to me. And then that, that sort of took me on a whole 
research trip into music, into prison songs uh, in modern day Turkey. And so, you know, I compiled a bunch with help, of course. And then I took from those songs uh, things that refer to natural motifs, things that refer to rocks or birds or water, or trees. And then I, I, I took just those lines and did kind of these medleys. The site of the of the performance was this was this uh, valley called the Balkan Deresi Valley, which uh, has these like little caves, and some of those caves were used as pigeon pigeon coves. A lot of them were used as uh, potato and lemon storage, and a lot of them were also used for monks to meditate. So again, there was these kind of parallels, and so I chose a potato storage, uh, the pigeon coves, and then. And then one side that was just in front of a mountain and distributed the kind of lines of the songs accordingly so that in each site they were sort of addressing this place or they were serenading this place. And so the performance was yeah, in three parts. It happened once, it was very early in the morning. It was again this kind of thing where people would follow the, the performers from the, the potato storage to the pigeon coats and then, and then the mountain. Uh, and for me, it was a way to yeah address this history, but also address again, you know, whereas in the previous parts of the project, I was interested in how the architecture might contain some of these resonances and therefore be witnesses. And here was more like the rocks, the trees, the birds, not just as a kind of poetics per se, but as a as a real belief in yeah trying to kind of think about historical actors that are not necessarily human. So to to kind of decenter the the kind of hegemonic figure of the, of the human as, as historical actor. And so, yeah, and this was something that was kind of through, through and through the project. So be it the kind of wood of the instrument or the strings that were made out of animal guts or the marble that was being kind of transferred from one place to another. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting about this, the comparison that you were making about these kind of African-American histories uh, of, of song in relationship to this Turkish context, I guess, could be, a, you know, a transition into thinking about the Renaissance Society project, um, just because it's an American context and some of the subject matter of the work there had to do with the United States. So I wonder, you know, there were three parts, three works that existed in this show, and I wonder if you can kind of just talk through the various elements. Yeah, there were three components. Uh, one film uh, that I made in 2019 uh, called Prometheus. Uh, another film that I made uh, that I premiered in this in the exhibition called All of Your Stars Are But Dust on My Shoes. And then there was a kind of uh, installation component, uh, which I had done a few different iterations of, called uh, 1,440 uh, Sunsets in 24 Hours, which consisted in painting the space uh, in dark gray and gridding it in white chalk, distributing uh, stadium lights mounted on photo tripods in the space, then pelting the walls using these magnesium chalk balls, which are these uh, socks that uh, are filled with chalk that uh, mainly, I guess, gymnasts, but also uh, alpinists use to keep their hands uh, dry. All three of the components uh, pick up on things that I've been kind of working on in different iterations at different times, but essentially 
Prometheus is some kind of history of fire. And so it uses fire, again, as a kind of non-human historical driver to actually talk about technicity, uh, the development of technology, fire being the first technology. And it does this kind of speculative genealogy of fire as it turns into weaponry. So it goes from fire to high-tech weaponry. The second film, Oliver Starts Up with Dust on My Shoes, is some kind of history of public lighting. Again, a kind of a speculative genealogy of uh, public lighting, mainly thinking of public lighting as the kind of first tool of mass surveillance, as a, as a kind of uh, developed, something that was developed by the police to generalize luminosity, to get rid of darkness. So whereas in the past you would have uh, been required to identify yourself with a lantern that you carry around, you know, the, the idea then becomes to illuminate the whole city you know, at the at the cost of privacy. relate to like a larger project around technology and surveillance which uh, also has a sports component within it and mainly this whole body of research starts from this one technology that three retired uh, IDF guys developed uh, from an algorithm that was developed for the Iron Dome technology which is which predicts the trajectory of rockets in order to know where and how to intercept it and then they apply the stuff to sports and so using cameras and this ability, this algorithm that, that can track the movement of all the players on the field at a given time, they uh, somehow figure out a way to extract an incredible amount of information from this tracking. And so it becomes really mass spread in all of professional sports to this day. So whether you're watching cricket or tennis or basketball or football, any of these nifty graphics that you see that kind of follow players around with dots that can tell you how many kilometers they've run, the contractor preferences of what distance they're shooting the ball from, so on and so forth. All of that stuff comes from this technology. And so there were several of these kinds of technologies that kind of, you know, it's not it's not like this big discovery uh, or it's not shocking in any way, but the ways in which technology travels from weaponry into uh, civilian use and in this case into entertainment use. And so in the same way as I think about this technology and as I think about lighting, I'm interested in the ambivalence of these technologies, right? So depending on who they're tracking or who the light is pointed to, they may be surveilling, uh, they may be monitoring, or they may be uh, valorizing or shedding light. So it's like this kind of value system distribution, depending on who is using the particular technology in question. One thing that it makes me think about a little bit is the way that you were talking about um, modernity in relationship to um, so this transformation of, of music or standardization of music and uh, the way that technology also, you know, sort of um, superimposes a kind of standardization ar around a certain set of things, like the, the grid being a, even a signifier of that, that that is, you know, a, a form of control that's often like supposedly at the service of 
the public that uh, that that was part of the Turkish national project, but also um, you know can be found in American empire things like that. I'm curious, like as you have, because I think you've shown a version of that piece, like the 14, uh, 1440 sunsets per 24 hours in different locations. And I'm wondering, you know, it, it suggests that there's one element of the grid, for instance, that suggests a kind of universality, that if you place this grid over any national context or legal context that you can get the same results, <laughs> you know, whether it's something you're looking for or something you're trying to do. But at the same time, there's going to be some local specificity that would need to, or, or would push up against that. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering, you know, th this is a, a, an issue that many artists who show globally <laughs> have to kind of face, is I wonder how, how you think about how this work works uh, in different contexts. So the grid, you know, I mean, it's it's a map too, right? It's like yeah. it's, it's the tools for for production of what geography is, which is universal. But it's also like a technological wireframe. So the the, the way in which I think about it is like that it becomes a, a kind of a digital replica of the space as skin already. And the other thing that it makes me kind of think of is that it assigns coordinates for anybody who's within this kind of system. So it already kind of registers a certain presence when somebody walks into the space. And so these are like the kinds of things that I think about as I'm as I'm kind of dealing with the space. But yeah, I mean, as I said for, you know, regarding these other projects, like modernity is uh, uneven throughout the world. But it and as you said, it has specificities in various contexts, but it is a kind of uh, overarching project. Mm -hmm. So all of the places that have shown this work have a power grid, for, for instance, <laughs> uh, or placed on a map, for, for instance. Yeah, and and the, and there are specificities in the sense that, like, so one of one of the things that I didn't mention in terms of these overlaps of like techno legality or techno legal gaze. So you know, we talked about the kind of like a military gaze that translates to an entertainment gaze. But another thing that I was looking at and the, the way in which it translates in, in sports is that it, it allows for a high level of prediction, like what a player is likely to do, where they're most likely to be effective from. It also kind of revolutionizes the betting world because you now have all of this data and all of these stats that you can kind of rely on to make your bets. So there's a predictive kind of logic that, that gets, you know, exponentially exploded with the, with the advent of this stuff. And so another predictive logic that I was that I was looking into was predictive policing or algorithmic policing, uh, which again is reliant on a grid and using all kinds of data basically predicts the likelihood of a crime happening in a particular place. And this is a way in which a police force in a given city will prioritize patrolling certain areas. You know, this is like really, it's a highly flawed uh, technology as you might imagine, but somehow it's, it's becoming the kind of, not to say the norm, but it's it's more and more widespread in, in, in different police forces. The first time I, 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 I presented this work, a version of this work was in Paris, mm -hmm. which is where public lighting starts. Uh, the second time I showed it was in Shanghai, and predictive policing uh, in Shanghai is uh, on some other level. <laughs> uh, I showed it in Yokohama, so same, uh -huh. there's like yeah, a, a, a big focus on predictive policing and developing predictive policing. 
And Chicago, which is one of the pioneering cities in the U.S. Uh, for predictive policing. And the narrative of crime in Chicago has been very present over the last few years. Yeah. And, and, and that crime being always being geospecific. Uh, I was wondering, also just as a kind of transition into another another related work, the lecture performance, World, Anti-World, um, which also dealt with the sort of intersections of sports and surveillance and sort of machine versus human. Just about how you think about the medium of performance in that work um, as a particular kind of embodied encounter, especially since some of the subject matter is literally about the technocratic impulse to erase the body and replace it with a machine. It seems also just slightly related to this idea of the, the body of the musician that we were talking about in the very beginning too. Yeah, I guess all the performances that I've done, I get excited about cramming people in a tight space, but there's a certain tension and I don't mean that in a kind of like art speak tension. I mean yeah. like literal people feeling tense, uh, particularly with the lecture performance stuff. Because the lecture performance format as well is like so kind of uh, frontal and mm -hmm. uh, didactic. Like I think of it as propaganda almost. And so I think you can just sense it in the room, right? Like there's things kind of get tense. I don't know. It's some of the times uh, people walk out. But yeah, it does all the things, I guess, that contemporary art sh shouldn't do, right? Like it's all about like, leaving for interpretation and all of this stuff. And yeah. it's not about that. And that's what I like about, about this particular format. And so, yeah, it's very much about, about kind of trapping people <laughs> in, in, in a space where, you know, you even kind of moving or uh, moving around in your seat can be heard. And so it just kind of creates this. Yeah, this tension that you can't, or that I don't know how to recreate in other forms. You don't get it in a, in a film. It's live. It's live storytelling. And it, you, you just get this kind of like live feedback in a way that art doesn't do. You do stuff in your studio and then it's out. And then, yeah, people come together at an opening, but that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. So yeah. this kind of like to be able to kind of put the thing out and get instant feedback. Yeah, that, that's special to me. It's important. I don't want this to sound, you know, sort of essentializing in any way, but just that, you know, a lot of my research uh, had had to do a little bit with the post-war generation in in Beirut and like the the focus of the focus of of memory and and the notion of the archive and the unreliability of 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 the archive and all of that and. I wonder if, you know, some of the work that you've talked about, it is dealing with histories and sort of whether it's through sites or objects or documents or figures. Um, and also even this notion of the lecture performance, I think of like Rabbi Mahoué or, or Tony Shakur or, or Walid Rad in, in that regard. And, you know, you're a different generation um, and have a whole set of other circumstances, but I, I wonder how you see yourself in relationship to that group of artists. Yeah, I mean the, the the format for sure. Uh, you know, I, I sort of picked up from those guys. I hadn't seen it before, and when I first came across it, it kind of just blew my mind. You know, it's sort of like so simple and straightforward in a sense, but it's also like it has endless possibilities. You know, you could yeah. be editing a film live, or or you could or it can be as, as kind of simple as telling a story. I think anything that I I, I would say in terms of like comparison would would you know, necessarily have to be reductive, but 
I guess the the main distinction in a way it's like those guys I think were were very um, suspect of images right to the point of like doubting if they exist. I, I I'm very seduced by images and I I try and use as many of them as as are in circulation and um, and you know proliferate them to to the point of like one is like total restraint or hesitation and mine is just like full on consumption let's go through it and then see see what kind of happens on the other side so I I, I don't differentiate between images in a sense so. It can be an ad. It can be some, you know, something that somebody shot on a phone. It can be a scientific illustration. I'm not looking for anything trustworthy. I'm not claiming to be trustworthy. I'm very clearly making a series of arguments with images, and I'm trying to make those arguments as kind of uh, punchy as I can, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's something very, um, yeah, so, something of like constructing an argument with images, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm not concerned about truth in this way i'm not trying to counter anybody's truth i'm not trying to create any truth i'm stating what i think uh is important and and that you know i mean it goes back to this thing of propaganda that i was talking about before i don't shy away from that word not because it's controversial or anything like that but because yeah I'm, i'm i want my work to be uh argumentative and not just in what it says, but in how it says it, how it's put together. And so in terms of like history, yeah, I think all of my work uh, has to do with history. Uh, you know, the, the kind of music stuff more more clearly because it has to do with this like particular period that doesn't have a lot of images that circulate around it. But most of my other work has uses pump footage or repurposed footage or whatever. And history is like, I think of it as like this constant hum, this thing that's kind of underneath everything. So it's not this that thing that's clearly in the past it's like it's right now uh it relates to the past and it shapes the future it's like it's not this linear kind of right. history it's like this other beast that that we are constantly kind of dealing with wrestling with facing ourselves within against and etc because i was also thinking that i think our conception of history and our conception of even images and what they are are different today than even like you know yeah I, I, I mean, as I said, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm friends with most of those guys. Yeah. And I've worked with them in different capacities, yeah. and you know, I lived outside of Lebanon a lot, so I'm not in this kind of like generational, right? You know, but sometimes you just feel it. And one of the times I feel it is like these days, you know, where again, there's like this, you know, after the explosion, yeah, there's conversations about like representing the catastrophe. How can you represent catastrophe? It's impossible, and so it's like again, this like impossibility of the image, and I'm like. I I don't care for this stuff, man. Like, like you know, I don't, care, I don't know if that's the question. I don't care about posing an impossible question. Like, it's a question that I know from the start is impossible. If you right. frame it in this way, then yeah, this, yeah, the scale of catastrophe is such that there's no way you can kind of put it in an image. But like, that's also true of capitalism and a lot of other things. So clearly, you're not going to like take it in one bite. So there's a million different approaches, and, yeah. and like the way that things through art is not necessarily through producing art too right it's like how do we as artists maybe kind of you know organize or like how do art structures like the Beirut Art Center and other institutions come together to like create platforms for other you know it doesn't right. have to be through this output necessarily so I don't know I think it's yeah this yeah because it, it necessarily you know there's 
some overlaps, but also there's, you know, people change, context change, our senses of our sense in the world change, you know, at the same time. I don't want to take too much more time, um, but thanks so much again. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate it. This recording was produced by Mara Schrettfeger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. Support Liquid Architecture's podcast and publishing through a Patreon subscription. To support, head to patreon.com slash liquidarchitecture.